0: You are listening to a sermon from St Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at st dundee.org.uk. I want to begin by just looking at the title for the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. This is not a title that the English translators have put in, this is a title that was in the original song. And it gives us a real background to this song. This is one, for me personally, it's one of my favorite psalms. And for many people it is, uh, Thomas Chalmers once called this the most deeply affecting of all psalms. And I am sure the one most applicable to me. I just wonder if you've ever felt really dirty. Just worthless. Just horrible. Just, you can't even explain it to people. It's not just that you feel rotten, that you've done something bad, that you feel a pang of guilt. But there's just a sense of uselessness, worthlessness, and, and dirt, is just a, it's, it's a great way to describe it. Maybe some of you have never, ever had that experience, but many of us have. And it's really hard to get rid of. Someone coming up to you and saying, don't worry, everything's okay, or you're really fine, or you're not that bad. You know that they don't know. And you really, really feel it. You just, there comes a time when you are just aware that there is something deeply wrong with you. And it is, it's a horrible experience and it can't just be explained away psychologically. Well, that's what this psalm is about. It's a song that occurs, as the title says, after the story of David, Bathsheba and Nathan. Uh, I haven't seen it yet. I have no idea what it will be like. I'm always quite wary of these things, but the Channel 5 series that started last night on the Bible, I'm absolutely certain this is one scene from the Old Testament they will have in it. story is straightforward. David is the king. David is the guy who writes Psalms. David is uh, Israel's leader. He is a godly man. He loves the Lord. Um, one day he goes out when he should have been fighting battles, and he looks out on his roof, and he looks onto another roof, and there is a beautiful woman bathing naked, and he basically says, I want her. And because he's king, he can have her, and he sends for her. And Bathsheba, she gets pregnant. And David feels maybe a little bit guilty about this, and he, obvious evidence of adultery for which the penalty in Israel was death. And so, he invites her husband, Uriah the Hittite, back, and Uriah refuses to go in and sleep with her because he wants to, he doesn't think it's right that he should be at home with his wife whilst his men are out fighting. So, David arranges for Uriah to be killed, uh, to be put in the front of the battle, and when he dies, David then marries Bathsheba and has a son, Solomon. Solomon. And David does not, or is not aware, or defends himself, or makes some kind of self-defense that he uh, doesn't, uh, he's not guilty. And the prophet Nathan comes to him, tells him a parable of a rich man who has plenty sheep, who takes the poor man's one lamb and kills it for a meal. And David is furious and says, where's this man? And Nathan says to him, one of the bravest statements I think ever made, he says, you're the man. And then David is absolutely convicted of his wrongdoing And he writes this psalm I I really, it's a shame for me this got spoiled by Shrek uh, But Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah tells it absolutely brilliantly Um, I've heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord But you don't really care for music, do you? It goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall The major lift, the battled king composing, the baffled king composing hallelujah your faith was strong but you needed proof you saw her bathing on the roof her beauty in the moonlight overthrew you she tied you to a kitchen chair she broke your throne and she cut your hair and from your lips she drew the hallelujah I actually think Cohen grasps and gets the story and the conflict between human desire and sin and worshiping God and I think that's uh, where some of us are deeply aware of that. Second Samuel twelve thirteen. You can read the whole story in Second Samuel eleven and twelve. For the sake of time we won't read it this morning, but you can read it there. But the key verse is 2 Samuel twelve thirteen, from which this whole psalm comes. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. So we ask just simply Can God forgive? Will He forgive? Some will even ask, do I deserve forgiveness? To which the answer is no. But how do we get out of that? So let's go into this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression, and my sin is always before me. Notice, it's very interesting. The psalm begins with God. And that's one of the big problems that you and I have. Because if you feel dirty, you feel bad, you feel discouraged, you feel depressed, you feel down, you begin and end with you. And anything that is said to you about God just gets swamped by you. But David begins and ends with God. Who is the one that we are sinning against? What is sin? If you know the catechism, and really it's it's a great thing to know the catechism, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Who is the one we are sinning against? David says he is merciful. He is unfailing love. He has great compassion. He is the judge. He teaches wisdom. And sin is transgression, as he says in verse 3, And also verse 1, it is deliberate rebellion against the known will of God. It's more than just slipping up. It's more than just a mistake. It is a deliberate defiance of the rebellious child. It's not even just breaking the law, like going over the speed limit or something. It is us just going against God. It is the relationship breaker. It is iniquity as he describes it. The twistedness of our human nature. It is general and it is specific. It stains. It pollutes. It corrupts. It destroys. It blinds. It perverts. It kills. The wages of sin is death. It blots out the light and needs itself to be blotted out. And that's why you get this cry for washing and for cleansing. There is a filth, an ingrained filth deep within us that no amount of New Year's resolutions, no amount of do-gooding will ever wipe out. There is a stain that cannot be removed. In a moment of complete madness, uh, I allowed my daughter and several of her friends to go and get dressed up for Halloween when we just put down a new carpet. That was white. And um, fake blood and white carpet don't go together very well. So I thought, I'll get this out, no problem. Scrubbed and scrubbed and scrubbed, and carpet shampooer and vinegar and Google whatever you want, you know, all the concoctions that people. My granny used to use hairspray, I, it, anything. It just wouldn't come out. So it's like, Most of our lives just now, there's a little bit of green carpet over it. If you lift it up, you'll see it. And a lot of us do that with sin. We think, okay, we can cover this over. We can hide this. We can deal with this. We can cope with this. But it's still there. It may be covered over, but it's still there. And it's really, really deep. We are not close to God. We don't know God. We reject God. Because there's an enormous barrier between us and God. To use the imagery of this story. And the imagery the Bible uses. Imagine that uh, you're a man or a woman who commits adultery. And you're with your partner. You know what you have done. Maybe they know. Maybe they've forgiven you. But it's really hard. It's a barrier that is there. And I think that's what it's like with us and God. There's this cloud, this darkness which prevents us from approaching the throne of grace and which needs to be removed. And David shows us how this is done. The first step is clearly repentance. But the trouble is you don't repent until you know. You can only pray for repentance when you are actually aware of what has happened. I know my transgressions he says now see when you pray for repentance see when you pray for forgiveness if you don't know in your heart your transgressions then it's just religious mumbo-jumbo you don't really really believe it when you do really believe it when you do see it it is sometimes incredibly overwhelming we are incredibly good at denial psychologists call this projection what that is is you can see something in someone else you note with disapproval the weaknesses that they have which you do not see in yourself your mind and my mind have amazing abilities to con ourselves think of David how could you I mean you're thinking come on David adultery murder you must have known that was wrong you never catch me being like that really I don't think you know yourself as well as you think you do. David could easily have thought, why not have another concubine? I've already got several. Why not pass off the paternity as Uriah's? We don't want a national scandal, do we? This wouldn't be good for the kingdom of Israel. It's very easy for us to pass off our own sin, to blame our genes, to blame our environment, to blame our circumstances, or as Christians to see other people's sins and not our own. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you're proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. See, you can have an intellectual awareness of sin We're all going to, I hope we're all going to admit intellectually, yes, none of us is perfect. But there's a difference between that and an awareness when you really feel it. The Holy Spirit comes to convict of sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. When the Spirit comes upon an individual or a church, there is often this sense of sin. Now, note, it's more than just feeling guilty And it's more than just sorrow or remorse, though it includes both those things. It's an overwhelming sense, not just that I have screwed up or let people down, but that I have sinned against a holy, absolutely pure, loving and almighty God. Against you, you only, have I sinned. That's a really strange expression. Because he sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah, got him killed. He sinned against many others. So how can he say against you, you only have I sinned? Because ultimately, our sin is against God. See, we think the other way around. We think, well, I did a bad thing to that person. I said a bad thing about them. I let them down. And God says, no, you didn't. It was against me. You did it against me. Against you. You only have I sinned. An unbroken heart, says one man, a high head, a tearless eye, and an unbent knee, is how the proud Pharisee was described. And that was David. Unbroken heart, high head, I'm the king, a tearless eye, and an unbent knee. And Nathan comes and he brings the knowledge to David, the knowledge of his sin. And God does that. God takes his word and he convicts us of our sin. Now, I know that what some of us immediately think, I've not murdered, I've not committed adultery. Maybe, maybe, maybe some have. But all of us, you, me, have sinned against God. And what you and I need to do is stop judging ourselves by our own standards, stop judging ourselves by our society's standards, and accept what the word of God says. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And David could have said, but you're sovereign. Why didn't you stop me? You're God. Why did you let that let me do this? And I hope this is not too speculative, but I think the answer would go something along these lines in order to bring you to recognize your sinfulness and my righteousness and that you would come to me for cleansing some of you here haven't slipped and fallen you are so cocky and so confident in your own smug self-righteousness that you don't recognize it and you think I wouldn't commit murder I know a minister who's committed murder I know people who've been involved in really really horrible things who've become believers and when you 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 hear what they've been involved or what they've done you'd say oh I wouldn't be that I wouldn't do that and yet sometimes you are you're there you're young you think what have I done I've not really done anything mega serious You're, you're still thinking of sin as being taking a sweetie from a shop or telling a wee white lie you haven't grasped just how serious it is and what is going on And I think God would say to David, I didn't stop you in order to bring you to recognize your sinfulness and my righteousness and that you would come for cleansing. Acknowledgement of our sinfulness is not just therapy. It's not just getting it off our chest so that we can feel better. Look what he says. He says, so that you would be justified. You are proved right when you speak and justified when you judged. I sinned against you, and you allowed this so that you would be proved right. It's in our nature to be sinful. I was sinful at birth. This week, I got a rather angry uh, letter from someone who professes to be a Christian saying, nobody believes in original sin anymore. You're so old-fashioned. And so out of date and so horrible. Well, the last one might be right. But, well, the other two may be right as well. But, but actually, if you don't believe in original sin, an original sin is not that you make up a new sin that no one else has ever done. It's original sin is that every human being born into this world is tainted because human nature is tainted because of the original sin of Adam and Eve. I believe that because God's word says it and I believe it because I see it all around. Now, this verse, verse five, I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. It's not what some people have understood as suggesting that conception or giving birth is dirty or wrong. It's not equating sex or birth with dirt. It's equating human nature with dirt. It's saying that the moment a person comes into existence, that person is a moral human being implanted both with the knowledge of the law of God and also a corrupt human nature. You taught me wisdom in the inner place. You desire truth in the inner parts. Incidentally, when all the argument about personhood and when is a person a person, when are they not, and the child in the womb, the child in the womb is a person. The child in the womb is implanted with human nature. The child in the womb has a sense of right and wrong implanted within them, though that has not yet come to expression or understanding. That glorious, beautiful, innocent child actually has a corrupt human nature. And no matter how you bring them up, they're going to be sinful. You can bring them up perfectly, but because they are brought up in a sinful environment and because within their nature they are sinful they will always end up as sinful sin is in our nature and therefore in our actions now I know that that's deeply unpopular and people really really don't like it but if you don't get this right at the very core you're going to screw up the rest of your life because you're going to think that fundamentally you and other people are good except when they're made bad other people you're going to divide the world into good guys and bad guys and the bible doesn't the bible says look we're all screwed up we're all screwed up only one exception of course we sang about that the infant holy jesus christ but for all of us we need washed we need a really really good scrub it's not just a quick shower This is not just a slight stain that you get rid of. This is the filthiest of filthy nappies that needs to be cleaned. Jeremiah 2.22 says this, Although you wash yourself with soda and use an abundance of soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me. So David begins by acknowledging that there is something deeply, deeply flawed within him that he is not going to turn around and blame on other people that he is acknowledging before a holy and almighty God. And he's saying, you, against you, I have sinned. Now, we'll see how he goes on, but we're going to sing uh, these verses. We're going to sing them in the 1650 version, uh, of Psalm 51. And uh, uh, we'll sing it to the tune, Saint Kilda. The words will come up on the screen, I think. And Stephen is going to, Stephen Allen is going to. Lead us in. There. After thy loving kindness, Lord, have mercy upon me. Let's stand and sing this, and sing this prayerfully as well. I always find that tune uh, very moving, and uh, particularly to that psalm. So... We need cleansed. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me. I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness and let the bones you've crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. God has to cleanse us. We can't cleanse ourselves. God has to create a clean heart. We can't do that ourselves. God has to wash us. Cleanse me is the prayer. And he's crushed. He feels crushed by God's anger. Now, why with hyssop? Exodus 12:21. then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. Not one of you shall go out the door of his house until morning. It was used in the Passover in the Exodus, the hyssop, to put the blood on. In Leviticus 14, verse 6, it's used to deal with disease in numbers 19 verse 17 it's to do with ostracizing being put out and hyssop is used to cleanse from that David recognizes his guilt and he wants to be clean from this sense of the filth of sin and the disease of sin and the defilement of sin and he wants to come back to God and he's in that impossible position that some of us have found ourselves in where we just feel rotten and we long for God but we just feel rotten and we know we can't get there and people come with religious cliches and they come with all their wise advice and they come with all their remedies and we know that it won't cleanse us and so verse eight we cry out give me back The joy I had. The joy of the sanctuary. Not just forgiveness he's wanting, but spiritual renewal. I I hope if you're a Christian you've had this experience. Not just the experience of of the sorrow of sin, but the experience of the joy of the Lord. When your heart almost burst with joy. Last Saturday at the Solas conference when we finished, we sang, Be Thou My Vision. And we'd had a great day and a real sense of God's presence. And you could feel it. You could see it in people's eyes. And you could, in in the singing, I don't think I've, I've heard singing like it in this church. It was really quite extraordinary. And then Sunday night, some of us were really, really tired. And some people were in feeling battered and bruised and Mike Reeves started speaking and he was speaking from Isaiah 60 and Isaiah 61 about the beauty of Christ and Christ the bride. And you could sense and you could feel and you could see the wonder and the joy of that. And that's what we want. There's too much joyless Christianity. And I don't mean by that, let's go along to church and let's have a really good sing song and feel really, really happy. I mean I want that yes but you can get that I was going to say at Den's Park but probably not You can get that at Tannadice you can, you can get that You can, you can, you can go to a, a club and get that You can get a good sing along In a lot of different places The joy is, is, is Beyond that it's deeper than that I think that one of the problems we've got with joyless Christianity is is this paradox. Some of you will say, well, you want joyful Christianity and you're talking about sin in such a horrible way. You're wanting to make us feel guilty and dirty and everything. And I'm saying, no, it's precisely because you're not aware of your sin that you don't know the joy of the Lord. Because if you're not really aware of your sin, you won't be asking for that deep clean, that deep cleansing. Look what he wants. He wants his bones to be healed Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. He's feeling stress and pain and agony and heartache and physical and pain, everything. And he just wants joy and he wants God to blot out sin from his memory. Look what else he wants. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. He wants purity and a steadfast... He's committed adultery. He's betrayed his family. He's betrayed someone else's family. He's committed murder. He's betrayed his country. He's betrayed his God. He's betrayed himself. How dare he ask for purity? How dare he ask for a willing spirit to sustain him? But he has to. Because David feared he'd become like his predecessor, Saul that he would lose the immediate benefits of salvation if not the ultimate reality see you and I as Christians we can grieve the spirit and we can quench the spirit and that's where we lose our joy we're still Christians oh we believe in Jesus and we trust in Jesus but we are limping on through life not just tired but battered bruised defeated David once more Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. He wants to teach the people again. He wants to testify. He wants to bear witness. But he can only do so as a penitent. He can only do so as a broken sinner who has come back to God and knows God's forgiveness and knows the joy of the Lord. See, when that happens to you, when you sing of Christ's righteousness, when you talk about God's forgiveness, it comes across so well because it is so, so real to you. I've heard people talk about the love of Jesus and the forgiveness of Jesus and the righteousness of Jesus, and you know how they talk about it? They talk about it as though, yeah, sure, it's a great thing and I deserve it. It's a great thing and I've got it. But I tell you has a much more effective witness it's the person who knows within themselves something of the depth of their own sin and yet knows that that's forgiven that is extraordinary it's an extraordinary feeling it's it's an extraordinary thing to be able to communicate because people who are conscious themselves of their sin look at you and they go is it possible is it just possible that could happen to me They're not interested in religious people who come in and say, hey, everything's great. Everything's wonderful. And Jesus did this for me. And how fantastic it all is. They're interested in those who have been broken and healed by God. I know God's amazing grace. Now, you see, the problem here is this. How does all this happen? Because under the law, there's no forgiveness for adultery and murder. There's no sacrifice for it. You don't find sacrifices for this. David doesn't know of a sacrifice for this. That's his problem. But he does know that the Lord does. He's not going to the temple saying, I'll offer this sacrifice and everything will be all right. He's coming to God absolutely broken because God has come to him and showed him his sin and he's saying, create in me a clean heart, O Lord. He knows that getting right with God is a matter of the heart. How can that happen? You could go from this building today and you could say, right, I am not going to do what I just did last night. I am not going to do what I did this week. I am not going to do that ever again. And you would not go away from this building forgiven and cleansed. You'd go away with a determination to put things right. And because of your heart, you won't be able to. How does it happen? Well, David appeals to God's mercy and God's grace and God's love. And where is that scene? Where is the sacrifice that can take away our sin? It is not the blood of bulls and goats. Hebrews 9.11, when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Now, I'm sorry that in a way these words have become cliched and difficult for us to grasp, but I love them. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners cleansed beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. You will struggle with this if you are not a Christian. Even as a Christian, I think we struggle with it conceptually to understand it. Can God forgive? Yes. How does God forgive? Through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what we remember when we take... Communion. That's how we're able to be here as Christians. That's how you can have this incredible awareness of sin and of just rottenness about yourself. And yet, you can listen to someone preaching on Christ, the beauty of the the bride of Christ. You can read God's word. And although you are conscious of your own sin, you can be elevated and lifted up almost to heaven. Because you're just aware of what Jesus has done, how he has taken every single thing that makes you rotten, that makes you feel so bad. He's taken them all and he's dealt with them and he's cast them far, far away. Leonard Cohen again, let me return to that song. I did my best. It wasn't much. I couldn't feel. So I tried to touch. I've told the truth. I didn't come to fool you. And even though it all went wrong, I'll stand before the Lord of song with nothing on my tongue, but hallelujah, hallelujah being praised the Lord. It all went wrong. Do you know, maybe this week it's all gone wrong. Maybe this year it's all gone wrong. Maybe all the plans that you had, all the things, and all the, the arrogance and the cockiness and the certainty and the surety that you had, and it's all gone wrong. And you would be absolutely broken and absolutely destroyed if you even dared to think about it. And so you turn away from it and you won't face it. But you can stand before the Lord of song. You can stand and say hallelujah. Why? Because he's, he's done it. He's taken all that stuff that's gone wrong and he's cleansed you and he's forgiven you. There are people who who look at this psalm and they just go, ah, come on. This was horrendous. What a real scumbag. Don't put me in the same category. You are in the same category as I am. And the only way that we can know joy and renewal in our lives, the ultimate renewal, is through what Jesus has done. I don't know how many times I've had to sit with people who over and over again have said, but you do not know how sinful I am. And I'll go, yes, and I don't want to know. I can't cope with that. It's not my business. I don't want to know. But you don't know. You don't realize. You can't talk me out of it. I don't want to talk you out of it. I want you to see that it's not about your sin. It's about what Christ has done to take away your sin. And it takes some nerve For somebody to say, yeah, but what Jesus has done isn't good enough for my sin. Because then I think, I I don't think you've got Christianity. I don't think you've grasped it. What Jesus did is so astounding. It cleanses you from absolutely everything. That's what I, I love so much about the Christian gospel. Not that it gives you a license to sin, but that enables you to be genuinely and truly forgiven and to be ransomed, healed and restored. I'll stand before the Lord of song with nothing on my tongue but hallelujah. May God grant that that would be true for every one of us. Let's sing Psalm 51. Uh, we're going to sing verses 7 to 19. If I ask if someone could go out for the children, um, the older children uh, come back in and also uh, could you make sure that Duncan Gregg comes back in Uh, Will, if you could maybe do that. And uh, we'll stand and sing uh, again as a response. Cleanse with hyssop, purify me, I'll be whiter than the snow. The tune is Ottawa. And again, Stephen will lead us. Now welcome the boys and girls back in as well. And we're just before we take communion, let me say something about it. I want to We've been looking at Psalm 51. I want to read verses 16 and 17 of Psalm 51. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. God's community consists of those who have been broken, those who are penitent. The story of the Pharisee and the tax collector The Pharisee boasted he's not like other men, that he's good and righteous. And he came. And he'd have no problem sitting at the Lord's table. The sinner beat his breast and cried, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he didn't come. We give to God the sacrifice of humility. Now, I want to say this to you. Isaiah 43 says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my sake and remembers your sins no more. If you're a Christian and you're thinking, do you know this, I I really shouldn't take the communion. I believe and I trust in Jesus, but I've been all over the place and I don't feel like it. I don't feel good in myself just now. God says, it's for my sake that I blot out your transgressions. Why is it for God's sake? Because Jesus died for our sin and Jesus will see the fruit of his labor. And the minute you say that the death of Jesus isn't sufficient, you let the devil win. The death of Jesus is sufficient for the most horrible sin, feeling, or whatever that you have and that you have committed. Hebrews 13 says, don't get carried away by all kinds of strange teachings, It's good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by ceremonial foods, which are of no value to those who eat them. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. He later on goes to say, it's through Jesus, therefore, that we continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. See, this bread and this wine is not magical. It doesn't turn into something It doesn't impart grace to you. It's bread and wine. Grace comes from God. The bread and the wine are symbols of God's grace. And as you eat and you drink, you're feeding on God's grace. God, by his grace, is coming to you, cleansing you, forgiving you, healing you, renewing you. You are not doing something for him. And you, you are not doing something or receiving something because you have earned it. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's give thanks. Lord, we thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you that as David came conscious of his own sin, acknowledging his own sin, convicted of his own sin, he knew that the sacrifices of the temple weren't enough. He knew that you would provide a sacrifice. Lord, we thank you that we now, as he looked forward, we can look back and we can see what that sacrifice was. And we pray that as we take this bread as a symbol of your broken body and of our unity, as we take this wine as a a symbol of your cleansing, that we would experience and know your grace and love and peace shed abroad in our hearts. For we ask it in your name. Amen.